0: I'd invite you this morning to open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And I would ask you to stand with me as we read these two brief verses, and and then we'll pray. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Verses 13 and 14, Paul writes to the Thessalonians and to us. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this that he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your great grace in our life. We thank you that you are a God who has revealed yourself. We thank you that you have called us out of the world and and together in this place this morning. And we pray that our gathering together in your name would not be in vain. But that we would understand you better. That we would be more like Christ. And that we would leave from this place ready to serve you. And more like Christ. As a result of our Worship together, and we pray in Jesus' precious name, amen. Please be seated. This morning, 15 years ago today, Nina and I woke up in Krapino, Croatia, after our first night there in our new home, and uh, Nina looked at me and said, what in the world have you gotten me into? Now, we've been there now for 15 years, and, and it's really been a, a great privilege to serve the Lord there in that land. But at the same time, um, I think back at those 15 years ago and the summer that we spent here, uh, primarily in Georgia. We started the summer in in the Northeast uh, just for a conference, and then we spent the whole summer here in Georgia uh, visiting churches, including Faith Community Church, and sharing our vision for the ministry and, and, and praying that God would raise up a group of churches that would stand behind us and be with us as we go to plant a church and and train leaders in Croatia, and it was during that summer that um, that I preached on the doctrine of God's sovereign election as my motivation to go to the mission field, and a lot of churches uh, that we all the churches that we were visiting in were were very excited about Reformed doctrine, and 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 that message really struck a note with many people. Uh, they, a lot of people that we had met were, were maybe new to Reformed doctrine or were growing in their understanding of, of God's grace and salvation and His sovereign will, but they had never seen it connected to missions and, and to evangelism, and so uh, just because of that topic that God led me to, to preach on, I think many churches were excited and ready to get on board with us, including Faith Community Church, and, and so it was, it was a great messages for, for our own hearts as we went out to Croatia and our hearts were, were full of hope that God had his people in Croatia and that none would be missing from those around the lamb whom the lamb itself had purchased with his own blood. Not one would be missing through all, all eternity. We were ready, as Paul said, to endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they would eventually obtain the salvation which God had designated them for. And Then we came back on our first furlough and, and it was during that time that I preached on 2 Corinthians chapter four verses one through six. and our attitude was then and it, and it still is today that we're servants for Jesus' sake, both of those whom we serve in Croatia, but also the churches that support us. It is our job as, as your ambassadors to serve you as we serve Christ. But that passage also emphasizes the sovereignty of God and salvation because Paul says in verse six there that God Just as he spoke in the first, at the beginning of of history, he spoke light, and light was created. God must speak, and light must be created in the heart of a sinner in order for them to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. Again, God must take the initiative in salvation. Salvation belongs to him. On a more recent visit, I was again drawn to focus on... um, The the grace of God as I thought about how can I serve, how can I minister to the churches that that serve us so faithfully. I was drawn to focus on the grace of God as it's as it's shown and illustrated in the parable of the vine workers. And and that was just a a message that reminded me personally and, and I hoped God used to remind everyone that we we need to realize that that we can't become so enamored with our own sacrifice, with our own effort and forget that God's grace to us is an extravagant and uh, um, luxurious grace that we don't deserve. Last summer, during a very short visit, I I found my heart drawn to the reliability and the trustworthiness of God. After after having been disappointed in, in other people, it was a great reminder for me that we could always trust in a God who would never, ever disappoint us. And so, as I began to think about what would I say to churches this summer, I'd noticed this pattern throughout my preaching, throughout the years of visiting churches and, and, and people who had so faithfully stood behind us, that God always seemed to draw my heart back to His character, back to His nature. And His providence, it was, again, uh, just... It's clear to me that God's nature was really something that has sustained us in ministry throughout 15 years, and I hope that it is something that sustains you. I believe more now than ever that focusing on God's excellent nature, on His excellent character, is the true sustaining motivation, a bedrock for us, as we serve God in Croatia, as we serve God in Woodstock, as we serve God wherever we might be. But I had to recently repent of one area of weak or negligent thinking about God's character and nature. It's not that I didn't believe the orthodox biblical view of this doctrine, but I simply had not thought enough about it. I had not thought about its implications enough. I want to speak to you this morning about the triune nature of God. And I'm tempted to ask you, when's the last time you heard a sermon on the Trinity? Now, I know that here you uh, have as your weekly portion, your, your regular nourishment as a flock of God, a regular systematic verse-by-verse preaching of the Scriptures, and that's what we teach in our school, that's what we do in our church in Krapina, and that's what I maintain. That should be the regular portion, the regular nourishment of the people of God. And yet because of that, sometimes I think we neglect Doctrines like the Trinity, which require us to back up and look more broadly at the Scriptures in order to understand it more clearly. I'm indebted to my wife Nina for many things, but more recently, really at the beginning of the year, she was gently prodding me and, and really enthusiastically provoking me to read a book that she was reading. It's called Gliding in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. And as she read this book and shared with me what, what she was learning there are many times where we just stop and say wow. We've never really thought about God's character in that way. Never really thought about the implications of this tr- this doctrine for our lives. Again, we understood the biblical teaching of the Trinity. We simply had not thought carefully about it. We had not thought about its importance or thought about its implications in our lives. And since Nina's recommendation and reading that book I've read another book called "Delighting in the Trinity, one, called, one by Tim Chester. And even this summer, I've been collecting books that people have re- recommended to me. And because of these two authors, and, and again, the subsequent reading of the Scriptures, I've simply had to repent about, of the fact that I had not thought about this amazing aspect of God's nature enough. And so my goal this morning to encourage you, to challenge you, is, is pretty expansive. I want to give an uh, 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 overview of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, again, it's not my forte. I'm more comfortable going verse by verse uh, systematically through the Scriptures uh, instead of doing this more theological exposition. But I just want to look at this, what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. I want to just briefly mention a little bit about the historical background of this doctrine But then I want to focus more fully on the implications and the applications of this doctrine for our lives. I contend with A.W. Tozer that the most important thing about any of us is what we believe about God. Likewise, God himself, through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah, said, if there's anything that man should boast in, if there's anything worthy of, of boasting... It is this, that you know and understand the only true God. So, what is the biblical doctrine of the Trinity? What does it say? What does it teach us? I don't have a lot of time to make a biblical case for the Trinity. Uh, I'm going to move through the verses very quickly. But I don't think that's a problem so much in this church, right? This is a church that believes in the Trinity. But at the same time, we do have to be careful. It's risky to take for granted. As I was talking to people here between services, we can't take for granted that people do believe the Trinity. Many sects, many deviations from Christianity deny this important doctrine. And of course, we know that Islam, Mormonism, would both deny the Trinity. Jehovah's Witnesses would refuse to confess that Jesus Christ is Almighty God. But even some branches of Pentecostalism that are embraced, accepted under the, the label of evangelicals do deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny that there is one God who is eternally coexistent in three persons. They, they kind of believe this uh, 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 kind of like God is a transformer. He transforms from the Father to the Spirit to the Son at different times. And so with so much confusion about the Trinity, both through the history of the church and in the church today, we can't take it for granted. So I want to give you a broad formulation of what the doctrine of the Trinity states. And and we could do that two ways. One is, uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem suggests in his book, Systematic Theology, that we we focus on three statements. There is one God. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. But for my purposes, and, and just... For me it was more explicit more specific to to follow what John Feinberg suggests. He suggests that we focus on seven different statements. Seven simple statements that we must affirm in order to affirm the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. First, there is but one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit, and the Son is not the Spirit. Seven simple statements, but the Bible affirms each of these statements clearly. So let's look at them just briefly. First, the unity of God. There is but one God. Open in your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. There's ample biblical evidence for the unity of God. We're not going to look at every single verse, but... I do want you to look at these verses. These verses follow the repetition of the law, the Ten Commandments. It's the most basic uh, summarized statement of the Israeli faith, the faith of the nation of Israel. We know that they were surrounded by polytheist nations that worshipped many gods on all sides, and, and their task was to drive these pagan, wicked, depraved nations out of the land which God had given them so God gives them this statement of the unity and the uniqueness of God and the necessity of, of loyally following Him, obeying Him, and loving Him alone. And He gave it to them as an anchor which would hold them fast against tide after tide of, of people that worship everything under the sun, including the sun itself. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 say, Hear, O Israel! The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. A statement on the unity of God. There is one God. God is one. We find also a statement in the New Testament. Very clear. James chapter 2, verse 19. James mentions the orthodoxy of the demons. He says, you believe that God is One. You do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. They, they tremble because they know who God is. James chapter 2, verse 19. We have testimony from Solomon. We have testimony from God himself through the mouth of Isaiah. We have Paul's testimony over and over. The Lord is God. There is no one else. There is no other. God is one. So the unity of the Godhead is maintained Throughout scripture, very clearly, there is one God. But diversity is also emphasized throughout Scripture so that we can say with full biblical authority that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Each of the members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, possess the divine attributes of holiness, eternity, knowing all things, being all present, being all-powerful, being sovereign, being perfectly righteous, having creative power, having a divine will, and each of them are infinite and perfect in every one of these attributes. Jesus affirms his own equality with God numerous times, especially in the Gospel of John, where he uses the divine name that God had given to Moses, I am. Jesus uses this Phrase for himself 23 times in the Gospel of John and 10 times specifically, I am, period. Nothing else. I am making himself equal to God so clearly that the leaders of the Jews were ready to kill him for blasphemy, for making himself equal to God. We find undeniable statements of Jesus' divinity in the New Testament, both from Paul and Peter, as well as the inspired testimony of Thomas, again in John chapter 20, verse 28, where he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And Jesus accepts that worship, that affirmation of his deity. Also, we have ample evidence of the deity of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, beginning with, say, Psalm 139, where, where his em- there's emphasis on the Spirit's omnipresence. Where can I go from your Spirit? David asks. We see that the the Spirit is omniscient, knowing all things, from Isaiah chapter 40, and also 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the Spirit knows the not mind of God. The Spirit is eternal, according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. He is the eternal Spirit. He has the sovereign power of life and regeneration. We know that from John chapter 3, where Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, you must be born by the Spirit. Titus chapter 3, verse 15, also affirms, the Spirit's sovereign power over life and regeneration. Peter and Paul also affirm the deity of the Holy Spirit when they make clear parallels between God and the Spirit. For instance, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Making, again, a parallel between God and the Spirit of God. So we have diversity. We've seen unity, God is one. Diversity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are God. But there is also distinction. We can say with full biblical authority that the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Spirit, and the Son is not the Spirit. Now, when we turn our attention to these distinctions, we have to be very careful when we discuss these. These are distinctions in person and in role, but they are not distinctions in nature. For instance, we we can't say that the Father is wiser or more powerful than the Son. The Son uh, didn't exist before the Spirit. The Spirit's not nearer to us, for instance, than the Father. There are distinctions in their persons, there are distinctions in their roles and in the way they relate to one another, but they are not distinctions in their nature themselves. The Father is not the Son because while the Word was God, in John chapter 1, the Word was with God as well. The Father is not the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes to the Father on our behalf, according to Romans chapter 8 verse 27. The Spirit's not praying to Himself. It's not a word play there. The Spirit is praying, interceding to the Father on our behalf. The Son is not the Spirit because Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 7, that He will go away so that He can send the Spirit. And if He doesn't go away, then the Spirit, the Helper, will not come. So we have the distinctions clearly maintained throughout all the Scriptures between the Father, the Son, and the Son. And the Holy Spirit. And you're familiar yourself with some of the indications of both plurality and unity regarding God. We were to look into the Old Testament, we'd study the name of God. One of the names is Elohim. And and you're probably familiar that that's a a name that's in plural. It's the plural, plural word for God in Hebrew. Now, Hebrew experts would tell us well, this just emphasizes the magnificence of God. By using a plural to refer to God. However, it still fits perfectly with the doctrine of the Trinity. Not that there are gods, but that there is diversity within the singular Godhead. You've probably also noticed, as you've studied the Bible, especially the book of Genesis, that there are times when when God refers to himself in the plural. He says, let us make Man in our own image. He's not talking to angels there because man is not made in the, in the image of angels, right? Of course, again, in, in Genesis chapter 11, the bane of all missionaries, where, where, where God says, let us go down and confuse their languages. And he did a great job, and, and missionaries struggle with that today because God did such a great job inventing languages. He says, let us go down and confuse their language." We see indications of God's plurality in other passages. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, Go, therefore, make disciples, discipling them, teaching them, and baptizing them in the name, one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We would expect the names, but only one name, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And of course, the beautiful picture of jesus being baptized that we find in the gospels specifically in in matthew chapter 3 jesus in order to fulfill all righteousness being baptized the father affirming his son from heaven with a voice and the spirit descending upon the son so we see these just beautiful pictures of both plurality and unity throughout the scriptures So again, just a very brief sketch of what the Bible teaches about the Trinity, God's nature. I just want to mention very briefly the historical uh, perspective on this doctrine. I don't have a lot of time to treat this subject adequately, but what is important is that, that the definition and the formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity occupied the greatest minds in church history for many centuries. This was necessary it was necessary for them to debate and to affirm and to clarify, to reaffirm, to stamp out any heresies as the doctrine, as the church unanimously, unanimously, um, I can't speak English or Croatian, um, unanimously affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the, the nature of, of Christ as both fully God and fully man, the deity of the Holy Spirit as well. This process and the attacks on this doctrine lasted several centuries. It was important and essential that the church clearly formulate this doctrine, and yet we rarely mention or talk about it. And again, all this battle, all this effort was not because the doctrine was unclear, but it was essential to defend and protect orthodox Christian doctrine at one of its most distinct beliefs, the Trinity. One of the lessons from this is that that this is not something that some man or some council thought up or imagined. No one would think of a three-in-one God. It's unique in the history of the world. It's unique in the history of religion. And it shows that God is Our God is unique. He's incomparable in comparison to all the so-called gods. As he himself says, I am God. There is no other over and over again in Isaiah. That's just a brief, very very humble uh, uh, description of of all that was going on. I would just encourage you even to, to, to find some church history books, some some um, historical theology books and, and learn and, and, and see a little bit about the councils that, where they fought these and, and find out about the characters that God used and raised up to defend the church and, and to return it back to clear teaching on His own nature, men like Athanasius. But what I want to do here now is, is just to focus on the applications, the implications of this for our own lives. And, and this is where I have to admit, I had never really thought about this, and, and Nina and I were both very provoked. And, and as I've read those books and then gone back and read the scriptures again, it's everywhere. You see it on every page, and it just it, it gives us sharper focus, clearer understanding of so many doctrines. It is challenging, though. Tim Chester in his book points out that, that we might be a little uncomfortable if not even embarrassed when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity because we just can't explain it adequately. There's no way to really illustrate it. Some theologians say that that as soon as you really think you understand and, and proclaim that you have come to a, a clear understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, that you may be unwittingly uh, proclaiming that you've become a heretic, that you've passed away from sound doctrine because it is challenging to understand again we know that there's no illustration that's adequate s lewis johnson points out that if you're satisfied with any of the classic illustrations of the trinity whether it's an egg all right you've heard that uh, a, an egg with a shell and with the the yolk or the white and then the yolk or uh or whether it's the water with its different phases you have solid you have liquid you have um um Steam, or, or gas. <laughs> Again, creation. Um, if um, if, you, if you, you, I know you've heard the illustration, uh, a father who's both a, a son and a father and, and a grandfather, three different roles. I've heard uh, and read illustrations like the clover, a shamrock that has three leaves and one. You've, you've seen probably the image of this, the triangle with a circle around it. And I even read on one blog uh, that a guy used the illustration of three-in-one detergent or three-in-one shampoo as an illustration for the Trinity. If that satisfies you, then you definitely do not understand the doctrine of the Trinity as well as any of these other illustrations. There's not an adequate illustration because it is so unique. It's so different. It's beyond our understanding. And yet, because something is challenging or difficult to understand it doesn't mean that it's impossible to affirm or that it's irrational and that's where we need to be firm the effect really should be humble worship of our god who is beyond our understanding it should compel us with an unquenchable desire to press forward in knowing him as much as we possibly can so i just want to talk about a few different doctrines and and even Aspects of Christian life that come into clearer focus when we understand the doctrine of the Trinity, or when we think about it in light of the Trinity. First of all, the doctrine of the atonement. Wayne Grudem points out that if Jesus were merely a created being, if he were not fully God, then it would be impossible to understand how God's wrath could be fully satisfied on our behalf. We could never, could we? Could never um have our wrath fully taken care of by any creature no matter how unique or amazing or magnificent that creature is it had to be god himself taking care of our sin and bearing the wrath of god on our behalf justification by faith alone it would be impossible to have complete confidence to be justified only by faith if we had to put our faith in anything other than or anyone other than God himself. And so, again, the deity of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to our doctrine of being saved by complete faith and faith alone in him. because we be led to trust in, again, a creature for the accomplishment of our redemption. The Father sends the Son to redeem us with a sacrifice of His own perfect life. It's the Spirit who enabled the Son to live that perfect life so so that His sacrifice would be worthy, would be viable, would be sufficient for sinners like us. The Father gives the Son. The Son fulfills the Father's will. The Father accepts the Son's sacrifice and affirms His acceptance of that sacrifice by raising him from the dead but that's not all the son is now the perfect mediator the only mediator between god and man according to 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 the father sends the spirit in the name of jesus and jesus sends the spirit from the father and the spirit applies the work of the son to our lives he brings conviction of sin of righteousness of judgment and then he enables us he gives us light and our opens our eyes so that we can recognize Jesus as Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. It's through the Spirit that we're born again, as we've already said in John chapter 3. It's through the Spirit that God the Father gives us the new life of Christ. Our salvation, our sanctification, it's all bound up in the Trinity. Have you ever heard someone say, well, you know... Um, God couldn't save someone like me. You don't know what I've done. As if the sacrifice of God, very God, the Son, was not enough to pay for our sins. Have you ever thought, I just can't get over this sin. I can't, I can't break this sinful habit. We understand that God, very God, the Spirit, dwells within us, enabling us to grow in grace and righteousness, and holiness. It is the Spirit of God, the Son of God, the Father God who is, has saved us and who is leading us in righteousness. The precious doctrine of our perseverance, the assurance of salvation, it's based on Trinitarian grace as well, as Tim Chester points out. It's rooted in the electing love of the Father, the finished work of the Son, and the present witness of the spirit who speaks to our spirit and says indeed we are children of god go home and and read ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 and and just notice the different uh members of the godhead and their role in our salvation our, their their roles in the in the drama of redemption in order to bring praise to the riches of the glories of the grace of the triune god sinners, to save sinners like us. All bound up in God's nature. What about our worship? What about our worship of God? We need to be careful that our apathy, and this is where I was really, really convicted, our laziness, our, our lack of curiosity, our lack of interest in God doesn't lead us really to a, a practical idolatry because we're worshiping uh, uh a false picture of a glorious reality. A God who is magnificent, who's glorious, who's, who's wondrous, who's, who's far different, far beyond what we could ever imagine. How does a deeper understanding of the Trinity help us to worship God better? Well, first, it points us to His uniqueness. We are reminded of the absolute uniqueness of the one True God. This is a distinction of true Christian faith, true biblical faith. There's no other religion, as we said, that, that would lead us to a diversity and unity and understanding who God is. God is completely unique. He's completely set apart from his creation. And no, as we said before, no human could possibly think this up. Or imagine it. Not the creation of some ruling class in order to maintain control over others. Christianity is unique, it's distinct, and it's based on revelation from God that we wouldn't have otherwise. God hadn't taken the step. What about God's knowability? Can we know God? How does understand that God is Trinity, how does that help us in our confidence that we can know Him? Even though God is completely unique, even though He's completely set apart from creation, we can still know Him. God, from all eternity past, has been a God of relationship, as the Father and the Son and the Spirit express love and honor and respect toward one another. And then we are called in, uh, included in this eternal, eternal drama of, of knowing and loving and honoring a God who is relational, who is knowable. What about God's independence? A triune God is completely independent and complete in all of His attributes apart from creation. Michael Reeves points out that that one of the 99 names of Allah is that He is the loving one. But if Allah as a single person God, is loving, how could He possibly be loving without creation? Right? Think about it. Before Allah created, there would be nothing to love. He would be completely dependent, completely um, uh, in, in need of the creation that He made in order to express His love. so he's dependent he's incomplete without creation but the bible is clear god our god is love first john chapter 4 verse 8 and he's always been love he didn't need to create mankind he didn't need creation in order to express his love because from all eternity the father has loved the son the son has loved the father The Father, the Son of love, the Spirit, the Spirit is love, the Father and Son. They've always, through all eternity, expressed that love. They did not create in order to make themselves more full. They are complete, even if they never created, loving others and receiving love, God, three in one. What about our service to God? What about mission? What about evangelism? C.F. Henry points out, and this would have been maybe 40 years ago, that the doctrine of the Trinity is seldom preached in evangelical churches. Even its practical values are neglected, except for an occasional emphasis on the role of the Trinity in the church's world missionary effort. So I, I read that quote, and I'm indebted to you as a missionary to preach on the Trinity, right? And he, he refers to John chapter 20, verse 21, where Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so also I send you. But what does the triune nature of God tell us about mission? Well, let's back up a second. Do you remember the, uh, the, the description of God in the Old Testament as being a jealous God? I am a jealous God. I have to admit, that always kind of bothered me. But I, I just simply reconciled it in my mind. God is perfect. So he must be perfect in his jealousy. And I think some of you probably have thought that way. And yet it still kind of gnawed at me. How could something that's a fault for us be a virtue for God? I accepted it. I believe that God could be jealous without being selfish, without being self-centered. Because I believe that God is holy. He's, he's morally perfect. And so his jealousy must be a perfect Jealousy without any hint of egoism or egocentricism. But if we look at this through the doctrine of the Trinity, it makes total sense. God can be jealous, and that jealousy is a virtue because that jealousy is not turned in on Himself. The Father is jealous that the Son receives glory. And the Son is jealous that the Father receives glory and honor. And the Spirit, and, and this is what's uh, really unbelievable, the Spirit agrees uh, and, and, and exists to bring glory and honor to the Son, almost as a silent partner, not bringing any attention to Himself. He's no less God. He's no less perfect. He brings honor to the Son, that the Son may then bring that honor to the Father, glorifying, glorying one another. And we, as god's servants, are included in this task. Our job is to make much of the name of God to bring glory and honor to him as He brings glory and honor jealously for himself, and we have the privilege of doing that of 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 serving him with our witness proclaiming his excellencies as Peter says, uh, letting People know who He is, how glorious He is, how incomparable He is, spreading the gospel of God's glorious grace as He glorifies Himself. The gospel is a call to believe in a God who is so glorious that He doesn't need us. He's so kind and gracious that He would redeem us through self-sacrifice. He's so wise that He would use the transformation of rebellious sinners in order to bring glory to to himself and reveal something about his character that would otherwise not be known. The gospel is a call to believe in a God that no human being could ever possibly think up or imagine. It's a call to have an eternal relationship with a God who is always loving, who's always delighting in perfect inner Trinitarian harmony and relationships. The gospel is a call to be included in an imperfect community sinners who are transformed into children saints who then bring glory and honor God through his grace opens the door to undeserving filthy ungodly enemies and transforms them by faith brings them in to observe and participate in this glorious drama of exalting and glorifying one another remember this uh, verses that we read at the beginning Uh, In in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 14, it was for this that he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus' prayer in, in John chapter 17 to the Father. There at the end he says, I want them to be with me. Why? So that they could observe, they could see the glory that I had with you before foundation of the world. We are called to be included in this glorious uh, opportunity to bring glory and honor to God. The, the gospel is a call to serve and, and to relish the life that God has given us. As, as David says in, in Psalms chapter 16, to find in his fullness, in his presence, fullness of joy. At his right hand, at his right hand, pleasures forevermore to know and discover that, that there's nothing on this earth that compares to God, that His nearness is our greatest, our only good, and that He is worthy of all praise and honor, that nothing is as desirable as God Himself. So I would just ask you this morning, if you're here this morning, you don't have a relationship with this God, this triune God who is love, who has always been loving, who is relational, who is glorious and, and magnificent. Look at your heart. Are there rivals to God in your heart? Ask the Spirit to examine, to reveal where your loyalties lie. Is your love for yourself, is your love for pleasure, is your selfish and manipulative love for others crowding out complete loyalty, love, and devotion to God Almighty, all-holy, all-knowing, All glorious, God who is only wise, who is gracious and merciful, a God who you must one day give an account to. Brothers and sisters, my encouragement to you is to know God. Know your God. Eternal life, Jesus says, is knowing God and the Son. Whom He sent, but that life calling that life goal is not for tomorrow it's not for later it's for today. know your God don't settle for a superficial knowledge of God don't settle for a superficial experience of of God that's not based on true knowledge that's not based on revelation on that which is cer- certain and true that which is God has given us know your God, know Him truly. Not through shallow anecdotes or clever quotes or or snappy sound bites from from things you've read on the internet. Know your God. Press in. Don't fall into the trap of of thinking that Christianity is about appealing to your fleshly desires for for fulfillment or promoting your own personal value or self-worth. We need to all cover our mouths and tremble before a God who is glorious, who is holy. We need to know Him, lose ourselves in Him, and then we will truly know ourselves, and and then we will find a true satisfaction. Not that which is offered by so many shallow Christian catchphrases or Or marketing programs to sell you the next greatest, newest, most best-selling Christian book. Know the God who is the one who has taken the initiative to reveal himself. He is the revealed one. The one who has revealed himself through the word. Know your God who is the revealer. The son, the word who became flesh and lived among us and gave us a glimpse of who God is in flesh. Know your God, the Spirit, the interpreter of this revelation, who helps us to understand, who leads us in a deeper knowledge. Know the God who has revealed, who is the revealer, and who is the interpreter of that revelation. Know your God, that you may serve him, that you may be more like him. Throughout these 15 years, uh, I've thought often about Isaiah, the hero of mine. um, and, And I've often wanted to interview Isaiah and just ask Isaiah, look, you know, 40 years in the ministry, essentially you had a long prophetic career. Day one, you're told to go And preach to people who will not listen. That your ministry will be to blind eyes, to announce judgment, to harden hearts. What was your sustaining motivation through such a long, fruitless ministry? How did you do that? How did you... How were you sustained? How could you possibly carry that burden? But that same chapter, Isaiah chapter 6, which which reveals to us Isaiah's call, I think also shows us what Isaiah's motivation was, how he could maintain that. God was gracious to Isaiah. He gave him a vision of himself. He revealed himself to him. Isaiah was in the temple, and he saw the vision it was the gl- glory of God. It, it filled the temple, and he heard the angels, and, he, and they cried, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty! The whole earth is full of His glory." And that vision, that revelation, that understanding of who God was, I think, was the factor that kept Isaiah preaching through years and years and years, up until he saw God's judgment fall on his people. It was God's grace. And this book is God's grace to us, His self-revelation. Who He is, what He is like, what He does, what He expects. He has given us this book to reveal Himself, His nature, and I believe that should compel us in our service. Our knowledge of who God is, our knowledge of His character. I hope that studying the Trinity and and, and this uh, this brief uh, study, this sketch, will provoke you to know God more fully, to know Him, to, to understand Him better, maybe to read books uh, a book or books on His attributes To know Him to serve Him and to be more like Him in His Son Jesus Christ. Know your God. Understand Him. Take advantage of the light that He has given, and how He's revealed Himself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word, that You are a God who has revealed Himself, who has given us light, who has help us, helps us and enables us to understand that light, to see that light. And Lord, I pray that You would help us to be a people who know You that our study of your word would not be an academic pursuit, but that it would be a devotional pursuit that leads us to a, a greater understanding of who you are and your character. That that would compel us to serve you. And, and Lord, we, we even pause to thank you that you are a gracious God, a good God, and you reward us. And that too is motivation, your reward. But, but Lord, I pray that, that your character, your worthiness, your gloriousness would be motivation for us and of itself. Lord, we pray that you would help us to go from this place enamored with you, caught up in who you are, and more devoted, more loyal to you, and that that love of you would, would compel us to be more like your son Christ. That we would be seen as those who belong to him and who know their God. We thank you in his precious name.